0: from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models. Special edition, I suppose. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu jitsu approach. And today, we've got not one, but two very special guests, both Black Belt World Champions in their own right. We've got Ms. Emily Kwok and Ms. Dominica Oblinette. How are you guys doing?
1: Lovely. Very good, Steve. I mean, could be better in given all this thing. news, but pretty good overall. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so I guess that's as good a segue as anything. Um, <laughs> I think each of us have made statements on the ongoing situations in the jujitsu community. There is, of course, a chance that people might listen to this episode two years from now so I suppose we should anchor it with some context as of this recording on August 19th 2021 in the last week or two there have been a series of statements and allegations against many people within the community about sexual abuse in Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I think probably we need to explain what that means there's different types of sexual abuse there is straight up rape um, there is sexual harassment there are a lot of things that can be construed as sexual abuse and one thing that i think we all agree on having all made individual statements about this is that this is a rampant problem in jujitsu and i'd like to talk about why we have this problem and i'd like to convince people that this is a real problem and a unique problem because i think the message i've kind of got from looking at people's responses online is i think some people don't understand exactly how amplified this problem is in our sport i'd also like to convince people that when these accusations come out we need to take them more seriously than a lot of people seem to be doing and i'd also like to talk about making this actionable because i i see right now that my social feed is blowing up with people who are coming out and making statements and shedding light on awful things that have been suppressed for years And that's awesome but the question then becomes how do we actually turn this into something actionable where it's a sport that we can be proud of so with that said we've got a a three-person panel here a little bit difficult to regulate this because it's not always clear when it's someone's turn to talk but we'll do our best i guess with that said emily do you want to open the floor this was your idea do you want to tell me what's on your mind?
2: Was it my idea? Was it my, I guess it was my idea. <laughs> it was my idea because I was having a back channeling conversation with Dominique and we're like, Whoa, what the F is going on right now? Um, because this is not my first trip around this ro- rodeo. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I, uh, I've, I've been seeing this and I've been a part of this for what are we talking about? Like 21 to almost 22 years now. And, it's interesting every time this conversation comes around again, how many more voices are a part of it. And, uh, you know, the conversation does change just a little bit. But, you know, damn, 22 years and we're still not really <laughs> doing that good. <laughs> and it's kind of um, shameful on some level that this is still an issue. Uh, but I think one of the reasons why I wanted to maybe do something uh, about this publicly, you know, like um have a discussion about it is one, Steve, that um uh, I think as as our relationship has developed, it's really nice to have an ally in uh on a public platform such as yours, where it's uh a, a well-respected platform that is listened to by all members, all different types of people within our community. And I've said many times before that in order for women to be treated more um Fairly uh, with respect or to be considered more equal that it can't just be women chattering to women about how we should be given more power or platform or ability or access. I mean, women talking to women and women empowering and supporting women is amazing. But we are in a male dominated sport. And I think in order to truly elevate the status of who we are, where we are, where we're going to all be together, it requires the assistance, the support and the respect of men. And there are a lot of good men in our community. And I, I want to highlight that as well, that we're not in this position because everybody is a complete shitbag. We are in this position because there are some notable individuals who maybe are at the forefront or leaders of our, uh, you know, culture, whatever that may be, who, um, who, who have the ability to, to take advantage of their positions and do crappy things like this, but this certainly doesn't speak for everyone as a whole. And so every time this conversation comes around again, there are more people, there are more women, there are more men who are training and who are starting to speak out and say like, look, this is not acceptable. And uh, as a female, I will say that I stopped running female only classes because I wanted to normalize women at the front of the room. And I think – we should normalize women at the front of the room that need to be respected just like everybody else. And we need to stop normalizing this sort of behavior. And I think this is why one of the primary reasons why I thought it would be good for us to have this discussion, because I think this is a systemic problem. We're not learning. Because we have tolerated and normalized it to the degree of, I mean, I will even admit like I'm part of the problem, right? Like I came up in a time where you had to look the other way if you wanted to survive this, right? If you spoke up in 2001 about some poor blue belt that went to a seminar and the, you know, big name in town shows up and wants to put his dick in her mouth. If you didn't turn the other way and not say anything about it, you got ostracized. So. This has been going on for a long time. I know it went on long before I started, and um, clearly we haven't learned very much. So that's why I brought it to the table, and I'm really grateful and thankful that you wanted to um, you know, give us the space to talk about this. So that's my little intro.
0: Amazing. Okay, Dom, what do you think?
1: Yes, um, basically, amen to everything that Emily just said. But I think my primary motivation for wanting to have a dialogue such as this with you two individuals, because I do think I value your opinions a lot and I do value the kinds of conversations and conversational topics you guys can bring up, um, was awareness. I was really interested in spreading and highlighting the awareness of what's going on in the jiu-jitsu community right now to a larger audience, especially to a larger male audience. I realized a long time ago that just because something is reposted 20 times on Instagram, that doesn't mean that it's reaching all the right channels. And we hope that with this kind of blowing open of the door of sexual assault in jujitsu at this current time, that a lot of eyes will see this content and a lot of people will make the decision to either disengage with individuals that are corrupt or um disaffiliate or stop training at gyms that have unfavorable individuals or start to like seek some sort of legal action. But I know that a lot of individuals are still not aware. So one of my main reasons was just to get a larger audience to hear what is being said and to spread the message more
0: amazing amazing and i again i thank both of you for coming by and spending the time with me now really this platform should be given to the two of you you guys have both put way more time and effort into the sport than i have and you're much more qualified to to speak on this but of course as a cisgender white male it is my duty and my obligation to insert my opinion even when it's not needed or remotely qualified so i will also <laughs> share my thoughts here my uninvited thoughts and i will act like an expert even though i have no fucking business talking about this at all um i i just sent a message to ryan hall today and i i thanked him for the article that he wrote the open letter that he wrote about the the cult-like nature of jiu-jitsu and the awful things that can happen and he wrote that letter nine years ago as of this this recording uh, in response to the allegations against Team Lloyd Irvin. That was nine years ago. And unfortunately, I think things have only gotten worse since then. It took a lot of bravery for Ryan to write something like that. I mean, this was before he had the platform he did today. He put a lot of time and effort into that. And it saddens me that things have gotten so much worse than that and i i want to maybe bust some myths here especially for for the people who maybe haven't experienced this firsthand or don't know anyone who has experienced this firsthand. I think a lot of people, maybe they hear all of these allegations and they think, as I keep hearing, it's just a, just a few bad apples. Or maybe they think that, um, you know, there's a reason why this happened and maybe the situation is overblown. And I want to maybe get, dig into those myths and bust them here so that people have a broader context in terms of what's really going on.
2: Should we um, actually, I know, I know that we're kind of familiar with some of these uh, stories um should we actually maybe share a handful so that audience uh, people who are listening who are not familiar with what we are talking about maybe you're not on social media or you your gym doesn't particularly you know immerse itself in what else is going on in jujitsu maybe it would be um good for us to just i don't know outline a handful of stories so that people can understand uh The severity of of the of the sort of issues at hand, and also the variety of ways in which this touches our community, um, that it's you know can be very subversive. Sometimes it's not that obvious, and sometimes it's very obvious. Um, What do you guys think?
0: I'm down. What do you
1: think, Dom? I think that's a great idea, Emily.
2: All right. Um, I guess I'll just begin by saying that when I posted this uh, earlier this afternoon that we were going to record this podcast. Um, I had a number of people reach out to me uh, on social media and they wanted to just share their story. And so I want to say like, this is not the first time that people have reached out to me and said, Hey, I want you to know about this, or can you do something about this? And I have to say, what's really difficult is you know, look, I've been in the sport for a while. I'll I'll say that, you know, when I was a white belt, I had a very bizarre instance where the school that I was training at, there was a gentleman there, maybe not a gentleman, a pig, who maybe not a pig, actually, just like a monster of a human being who um, wanted to pursue me in a romantic way, but he would train with me and... I I I don't know how it's possible, but I guess for him, it was, he would get a hard on in the middle of training and he would like pin me in positions like side control and poke me with his ding-a-ling and say, do you feel that? As I was trapped underneath him and um, things were not, fuck? yeah, r- it was not fun. <laughs> it was not fun. It was very awkward. And I was like 19, 20 years old. And this guy was probably in his mid to late thirties and he had a girlfriend And, um, it disturbed me enough that I told my best friend who, um, was, I believe Roy was maybe a blue belt or a purple belt at the time. This is very early in the jujitsu scene in Vancouver, but he called this guy up and said, listen, motherfucker, if you touch my friend again, or you do anything inappropriate, I will come around a corner in the middle of the night when you're walking down the street and break your knees with an iron pipe, leave her alone. Now that was I feel a wonderful response and I was glad to feel supported, but I understand that this is not always what will happen with a lot of women when they come out and tell their stories. And so I just want to preface this by saying that a lot of people who have come to me in the past and asked me to say something, it's very difficult when sometimes the victims don't want to, don't want to say what's happened. Right? So, uh, when you, when you want support and you want help from people who may have, uh, maybe more more visibility or power than you who want to help you. Um, I understand there are really complex dynamics between victims coming forth and actually being able to go on the record and tell their story of what's happened. but this is really um, it's really difficult for us to do anything when, you know, quote unquote, we don't have a lot of evidence or we don't even have a real story to go off of. We just know that somebody's in pain and they're hurting um, but it but and they want help but they're afraid to say anything. And so I had some people reach out to me today who were willing to, uh, they wanted to share their story and they were happy to have us tell their story without necessarily, uh, revealing who they are. Um, so in this one, instance, there was a young woman who was training with someone. Um, She was a new student in her gym and the individual she was training with as she uh, went to get up, turned around and grabbed her ass and pulled her close. And she wished that she would have had some sort of a reaction to it, but she kind of froze. Her instructor was supervising uh, another friend in the uh, one of the instructor's friends saw it. It was right in front of them. So it wasn't like there weren't any witnesses. Um, she also went and spoke to a male black belt in the same gym about it. And their reaction was, well, it's a contact sport. And then she went into a headspace where she started trying to figure out, okay, I guess I have to justify the incident or like downplay what had happened. And then about a year later, Something similar happened again to someone else. Uh, so, when she found out about it, she encouraged this woman to speak out to the owner, and she did, and then nothing happened once again. So, uh, shortly thereafter, the owner then posted a picture of himself with the uh, individual that had, you know, rudely grabbed both of these women inappropriately and uh, was praising him. Right. So this is kind of a, a very typical, I, I would say, like bro culture type thing that happens um, where I think those who are in power are reluctant to call out those who offend or or assault or do inappropriate things in their gym because they want to make sure that they maintain control of their culture. And to them, it's better to silence or to ignore uh, a woman You know, sometimes as a woman, you're seen as a troublemaker, right? Uh, As opposed to sticking up for them and doing what's right. Um, In another situation, there was a woman who got involved with someone in their gym who was a teacher and that individual became physically abusive towards her. Um, He was even responsible for teaching the women's class. She spoke to another teacher about it and that individual blew her off and was told that some people just need second chances not a big deal um it con- the abuse continued until this individual decided that she had enough and then she was threatened um so she was threatened and ostracized right and this is another very similar tactic that's used in gyms when a female does not go along with the intentions of you know the the male then they will be ostracized and uh, ridiculed and sort of shunned from the gym and hence why do we not have a lot of women training jiu jitsu these are just a couple um, instances so i just wanted to share those two stories to just provide some examples of how uh this kind of stuff happens and that it's not always it doesn't need to be taken as far as a rape or anything uh serious like very serious in terms of physical assault but like sometimes it's 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 more subversive than that so i just wanted to put that out there
1: i'm gonna jump in here and say um something you said in the very beginning emily kind of um made me think of situations where when we're first starting out in jiu-jitsu, when we're kind of fresh to the sport, and there are so many beginners out there right now, especially women, we don't quite know what proper etiquette is. We don't really know what what decorum to expect in jiu-jitsu. And it might be very difficult to note what inappropriate behavior is, especially on the mats, because this is such an intimate sport because of the fact that we are engaged in a combat that involves one person touching another person, and sometimes body parts ending up in situations that are not really comfortable. And we're often told, there's often this dialogue put forward by head instructors that is very dismissive of anything that's inappropriate or uncomfortable. If somebody touches you the wrong way, oh, they probably didn't mean it. If you notice something that was off about someone, oh, maybe you're just thinking about, maybe you're just overthinking things, maybe you're just looking too far into the situation. And so many people are afraid to speak up. And what kind of has come to mind now it as you were telling these stories is a lot of women, especially when they start jujitsu, are in a gym where they don't have another female role model or um, person behind the desk or someone in a more authoritative role to go to or turn to if any of these happen to clarify whether this behavior was okay or not. And that can just create an entire system of complacency where people don't understand that what is happening to them is incredibly inappropriate. And it just will continue to reinforce really bad behavior. I remember when I was 16, I was having conversations online with um people in jujitsu black belts I should say that were much older than me in their thirties in their late twenties to thirties and these individuals were talking to me as if they were going to date me. They were talking about having sex with me. They were talking about flirting with me, meeting up with me at tournaments. And when I was 16, I was really sheltered. I I lived my entire life as somebody who just did jujitsu 24-7 and went to school. I didn't really know what proper behavior looked like. And I was also in this kind of blossoming stage of my life, if you will, where I welcomed attention. And I thought, wow, well, if these individuals that have a name on the scene and are generally liked and have a lot of support behind them in competition, see something worthwhile in me, then that must make me special. And looking back at it today, now that I'm 26, I'm, I'm absolutely horrified. It's, um, it's pretty awful to think about how many young women have been messaged or have been approached by instructors and by, and by people just online that assume that this kind of behavior is okay. And there's this kind of fear of admitting to the fact that maybe you engage in this, in, in this kind of, um, dialogue because as someone who went through it myself in this smaller way, nothing ever happened, but I did have these online conversations that did rub me the wrong way. I really didn't want to talk about them until this moment because I felt embarrassed. I didn't know if this was, um, this was my fault, if I was leading people on if um, my parents or my teammates or whoever would be disappointed in me or look at me a certain way. And this is just one of the multitudes of reasons why people would not come forward with their stories, aside from the much more intense ramifications like violence or fear of being ostracized or fear of being kicked out of their gym or not even having another training space available to them. Um, So those are just my two cents, something that came up while you were speaking, Emily.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I want to also add on to that, Dom, you know, you, you raise a good, when you start talking about the fact, like, sometimes it's like, you don't know how to act or what the etiquette is. I also have to say that when I started doing jujitsu, the etiquette was, if you were a female, you went to a gym, you were probably one of the only women out there. And so what did you do? You looked for ways to survive how do I survive? Let me attach myself to someone who's powerful within the school. Who would that be? That would be a black belt or an instructor if there was a black belt, right? And so I would even say culturally at the time, it was very common for women to go into a gym and and try to date or associate themselves with higher level or like people within the inner circle of that school or higher up the ladder, or maybe even the instructor or the owner themselves. This was just the norm. And I think that a lot of it was done for survival reasons. You know, like if I think about it, I'm like, yeah, I want to make sure that I last. I want people to include me. I want to get help. And how do I get help? Well, how do I become special? And so you know, it's interesting how the dynamic has grown and shifted, right? And like, this was something that I would say uh, some of us did as a as a, a survival mechanism it wasn't necessarily my path to always do that. I often befriended groups of guys that would take me under their wing. And I made, uh, I, I made tremendous progress because I had really wonderful men that always looked after me my early years and would help me up the ladder. But it was, it was, it was a problem sometimes because you would see people come in. And I really th- think that some of this boils down to status and power. How do I stay in this? How do I uh, climb up the ladder? How do I make sure that I get more? How do I continue to, uh, secure my path? And it's kind of worked us in a, in a lot of ways. The other thing that I think is also important to mention is that, you know, in North America, particularly in Canada, there were very few black belts that were capable of promoting you the right way. And so when you're practicing a niche sport and you're trying to find your own way up the ladder, male or female, you need to make sure you have a source that's willing to promote you. And so when, you know, big names would come around and do seminars, what happens? Big shot rolls up into town has a seminar two or three girls attend maybe a white belt and a couple blue belts and you hear stories of let's go to the garage while everybody's having you know a barbecue in the backyard you know let's go out after uh, after the seminar and let's go hit a club why don't you come back to my hotel room this this stuff was commonplace and I even though our sport has grown and evolved I think that a lot of this behavior has kind of been baked into how we operate. And so when I say that I'm part of the problem, like I came up in a generation where this was the way. And so when Dominique is talking about, well, what's the etiquette? How do we act? Well, what do you think the way is to act when that's what you see other women trying to, you know, get themselves into favorable positions. And I'm not saying that all of us did that. I'm not saying that that was everything that happened, but the power dynamics were so, so strange at the time because it was such a new sport. And, you know, now I think we know better and we're further into it, but we still haven't dropped some of these types of, um, I don't know, weird, weird social dynamics and they are really hurting us now, you know? And, and so when Dominica talks about etiquette, it's like, what is etiquette? What do we value? What did we value then? What do we value today? Maybe we should really have a discussion about that.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I wanted to highlight one thing that you said, um, just that the term don't be a problem. I think this is something that I mo- most likely most women feel as soon as they enter the jujitsu space is how do I not be an issue in this space, especially if I'm the sole woman in the space. We've heard so many countless stories of women in other countries now, uh, 20 years ago, and even in some smaller gyms today, you walk in, you're the only girl in the room, and the individuals that you're training with either want to date you or they want nothing to do with you. They don't know how to train with you. They don't know what your boundaries are. They don't really want to get to know you. You are just something that is standing in the way of them training with one another. So they feel like they have to change a space to accommodate you and therefore you are a problem. And I think for this reason, um, we have these women that entertain this idea of either becoming part of the boys club and maybe changing parts of their personalities or changing parts of who they are in order to fit into the culture and um not be an issue to the instructor or the individuals that train there. Or you have women that just get isolated and shunned and make it a part they can't even survive the jiu jitsu space because they're constantly um their the space is working against them constantly. They're being shunned. They're being told that they are not good enough for the training and they're being if they reject anybody's advances or if they do have an unfortunate story to tell, their stories are not listened to. And then they are um, they're just kind of immediately um, pushed out of the space. And for this reason, I seem I see I see why so many women have a reason not to come back to the sport. There's so much at stake when you come into a space that's entirely male dominated, especially if you were a smaller woman. Especially if you have, you have a history of trauma or you have, um, things that you are working through in the space that are going to be made even more difficult when you have somebody that's 200 pounds heavier than you, um, climbing into mount on top of you. So I think, um, creating a discussion around etiquette, especially gym to gym would be extraordinarily helpful. Specifically, how, how can, um, instructors uh, allow women to feel safe in these training spaces or allow anybody to feel safe in their training spaces? How can we create healthy boundaries from instructor to student and from student to student? What, what do those relationships look like?
2: I was actually going to pass the baton to you, Steve, and I was going to say, <laughs> you know, as a male and as somebody who is also a black belt and has been around for a little bit and also, uh, witnessed certain stains being made in Vancouver, um, what, like, why is this issue important to you as a man? Like, I just, I, I think I know why, but I would love for your listeners to hear this because, you know, I think that there's a lot of, Uh, times where we all stand by and we close our eyes or we look the other way and we say, well, I I wasn't really involved in this. So I'm just not going to make a fuss. I'm not going to, I'm not going to stir the waters. But, you know, for every man out there who has a wife or a daughter or a sister or a mother or a friend, you know, like not doing something really hurts us deeply, you know, And, and I would love to hear your perspective on why this issue is important.
0: Sure. Sure. I mean, as a, as a male man, finally, something I'm uniquely qualified to talk about. I'm very happy that I on <laughs> this matter. So, okay. So, so as a, as a, as a man who has done jujitsu for what is it? 2021. Holy moly. It's been 13 years since I started this sport. Um, there's a few things that I would say in terms of how I, I would attack this problem. The first thing is I think there's just something weird, Emily, and generational about the way that our generation talked and dealt with these things. You alluded to that earlier when you talked about how our generation was part of the problem. I mean, I hate to say that, but I I really can't agree with you more. It's completely true. I read a book a while back by Olivia Munn. Don't know if you know her. She's an actress. She was in X Men. She's really famous in the in the like computer geek community because she used to she worked actually used to work in that field and now she's kind of gone back to it, um, sort of like a a minor celebrity. And she wrote a book. And in her book, she talked about a time when she was on a movie set in a trailer, and basically the producer effectively sexually assaulted her. I mean, I won't get into the nitty gritty. And that in itself isn't surprising, I suppose, and that's unfortunate, but what is really surprising and what really unnerved me about the way that she wrote about that is she described it as comedy. Um, Rather than talking about it in the context of a traumatic experience, she talked about it in the context of someone who fully expected this to happen and it happened, and at that point she tried to laugh it off and she tried to normalize it. And that's the thing that really bothers me. Um, the fact, the fact that this stuff, when it does happen, it gets normalized. There's always going to be people who do the wrong thing, but the question is, what do you do with those people at the end of the day? And how, how does what you do with them impact everyone else? And what I have seen time and time again in the jujitsu community is that we do the wrong thing. And my hope is that the next generation can do a better job and take this stuff seriously. And if the last week or two have been any indication, I am very hopeful that, that will be the case. But like you said at the beginning, Emily, it's one thing to make social media posts on this. It's another to see systemic, ongoing change. And the reason this matters to me as a guy, um, I, I guess that at the end of the day, I'm usually not the brunt of this stuff. And I think that's where a lot of the criticisms come. When women levy these complaints usually it is the men that dismiss them as you said it's usually not women who come out with the um you know the grab bag of common rebuttals like well how do you know she didn't want it or um you know where's the evidence there's always a handful of rebuttals that come out every single time and those almost always come from men And they come from men who have a vested interest, usually in defending the person who is responsible for the behavior. And the reason this matters to me as a guy is because in addition to the fact that I I have taken on this sport as a huge part of my life, I mean, jujitsu has been one of the longest commitments I've ever made to any relationship. What happens in this community as a black belt, as one of the premier podcasts in the sport, it reflects on me. When I step on the mats and I try to advocate and tell people how great this sport is, I can't really do that in good conscience knowing how many people have been abused in this sport. So it does, it does impact me. And the other thing is, too, there is a second-level impact. With these abusers, part of the reason why people rally behind them is because from my experience, they're afraid of those people. If you've got someone who is willing to sexually abuse and systematically sexually abuse women, what do you think they're going to do to the men who side with those women? Because I can tell you, I've seen it firsthand. And the men are going to be right up next in terms of getting the brunt of this. So a big part of this, I think, a big part of the reason why men stay silent is partially because they're afraid of, of taking a stand because they're afraid of putting their own skin in the game. That's what I would say.
2: Yeah, I mean the amount of retaliation. I mean it's you just get run out of schools. And you know what? What I think is hard for people to understand if they've never been in a situation where they have been blacklisted or ostracized from their school and social circles is that when you are there and you're subjectively living that life, your school and your uh, your cluster, your crew—that's the only thing that matters. So like. I've I've experienced this in other ways, but ostr- ostracization. But um, it's you know when you gain some perspective and you step away from it, it's almost comical to be like, wow, how does a grown person who is in there like? late thirties or forties who has a family and a real career and a good head on their shoulders about most things in life, how do they end up becoming so uh, stricken with fear that they are paralyzed to do the right thing in in a a sort of a social activity, right? Like we get so bound to uh, this fabric that we think we're a part of that we actually will often do the wrong thing because we don't want to be ostracized. I also think that another thing that happens here is there's a power dynamic and there's a legacy that's been built upon year after year. And so it doesn't serve sometimes the school owner or the in, uh, or the head instructor or the person who whoever's leading that culture. Um, it doesn't serve them to call out other people, right? Like in their minds. I believe that vulnerability is a huge signal of strength and I believe that, you know, if we're transparent and we show where we've made mistakes, that that actually helps everybody become better. But in a lot of circumstances, this dynamic is not appreciated. And, you know, your signal of success is to just stand in your ivory tower. And so I think for a lot of individuals who uh, have to manage or encounter these types of situations within their schools, it doesn't serve them to call it out because they think that by rooting it out, it will actually break apart. Uh, the the foundation of what they've built, right? Uh, what they've built their ivory tower on, and so they just choose not to say anything and to sort of be really scarce about it, and say, no, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna hold down tight, I'm gonna lock down on what I've got going on here, and I don't want this to become bigger than what it is. It doesn't need to get bigger than what it is. It's not about doing what's right. It's about keeping money in my pocket and it's about keeping control. where, where I have it. I also wanted to say, Steve, you know, you talked about women in, in some of this. Sometimes women are also some of the worst offenders. They will protect. Uh, people, because maybe there's interest in there. Like maybe it's a girlfriend or a wife or someone else, maybe it's your best friend, and you don't want to see that person get struck down. So women will go after other women um, who are coming from a place of pain. And so I think females also have to do a lot of work in terms of seeing that we are not enemies of each other. And uh, I think Adam Grant mentioned this in a, in a book called Power that came out on audible some time ago, but you know, that there was the issue of, you know, in, there's very few structures that we have where females are given more than like one seat. Like there's always a scarcity uh, of women's uh, positions of power when, within certain entities. And so if there's like, let's say a board of directors, and there's only one seat that's generally given to a woman or a minority, then if there's only 10 women in the organization, they're all competing for that one seat. And so because they're all competing for that one seat, they then begin to make enemies of each other versus saying, well, how else can we put women in more positions of power so that we can elevate each other and share what we have as opposed to targeting each other. And so, um, I just, you know, I I want to say too, like I think some a lot of this really just boils down to, um, you know, power dynamics and keeping certain people down and not wanting to be able to give uh, individuals voices. And I think that there's just so much more that we can do for each other than to uh, try to clamp down and manage this this culture with scarcity.
1: Uh, as you were talking, Emily, and outlining the kind of when you were talking about why. Um, Some women could be also on the offender side because they're girlfriends or wives. Um, This thought occurred to me that um, this entire conversation we're having is a very specific version of kind of tribalism of all these individuals trying desperately to protect the sanctity of the tribes that they belong to, whether it's the family, whether it's a woman protecting her boyfriend who's accused of rape, whether it's the gym, the instructor that's trying to protect his business um, from falling apart, as you said, I think there's this fear of my tribe is going to dissipate and I'm going to be left alone and I'm going to be left powerless. I'm going to be a pariah because I kind of supported all, uh, the wrong thing or I supported the wrong side or I did something to create a situation where um, I am, uh, I'm the one that's being held responsible and my punishment is I'm being socially exiled. But I think we need to figure out a way, or I think maybe not us, but I think in society, I guess, we have to figure out a way to um, rethink this idea, rethink these um, these groups. Why do you want to belong to a group where the, the people that belong within it are abusers? Why uh, dig deep inside and introspectively try to understand why would you be interested in protecting these individuals? Why is it so important to you to belong to a tribe that um, has these individuals at the forefront? Is it because they are powerful? Is it because they are dynastic? Is it because their jujitsu is so good that you can't possibly imagine living a life without them? Or do you see, do you see something inside of them that you want to relate to? Or do you see something inside of them that is worth protecting, even risking your business for? And I think, that that to me is a really interesting question because i think it could bring to light why there are simple kind of mom and pop individuals that will defend indi- defend the current individuals that are being talked about um in the context of jujitsu that are defending um child predators and sexual abusers
0: so this is something that i am just i'm really struggling to get my head around and i've definitely seen it in the last week or two where people will be accused of these horrendous things. And in many cases, accused with just a preponderance of evidence. It's it's pretty clear that these accusations bear serious weight. In some cases, there's even convictions attached, right? These are not situations where we're talking about, well, he said, she said. These are situations where it's pretty clear what happened. And there are still people who will crawl out of the woodwork and defend these people. And what I found so bizarre is a lot of the time the people who defend the, the accused they don't even know that person. I get messages from people all the time who come out of their way to defend someone who has pretty clearly racked up a series of sexual allegations against them. And I always wonder, what inspired you to reach out and defend this person who doesn't even know you exist? Why are you feeling so pressured to protect someone who you don't even know, Um, ultimately the job of getting justice should not be the responsibility of strangers. If you don't know any of the parties involved and you don't know any of the details, I don't know why you're reaching out and trying to suppress these allegations because you don't know anything about the situation. And its I don't think men, especially men who have not seen a woman go through this, I don't think men understand what this actually looks like because I certainly didn't. I can tell you this firsthand. When I was in my 20s, I mean, obviously, like anyone else who was brought up right, I thought sexual abuse was just abhorrent and I condemned it unequivocally. But it's one thing to condemn the theory, and it's another thing to actually see it happen to your friends in practice, because often it doesn't look the same. It's much more insidious and malicious, and you normally don't know the details. It, you very rarely will get a situation where someone submits a videotape that provides hard video evidence that this thing actually happened. Usually, it's a much more nuanced conversation. And so the question then becomes in a situation like that, how seriously do you treat an accusation if you don't have hard video evidence? Because, Emily, as you mentioned, a lot of the time um, when someone famous is accused of doing something terrible, the first response is, Show me the evidence. And I understand that if you, I mean, if we're going to put someone in jail, then obviously there should be a degree of evidence. But in terms of the way that we operate as a social structure, I think that we need to have a different standard of care. I mean, for all of these people out there who say, show me the evidence, show me the evidence that Cyborg did something terrible, that Marcel did something terrible, that Wagner did something terrible. My response would be, look, we definitely need a certain preponderance of evidence if we want to actually put these people in prison for sure no question but even if we don't have that level of evidence would you let your children train with Marcel you know even if he had or hadn't been formally convicted of anything regardless of that situation if there's a series of accusations against someone especially from people that you know personally and you love and you care about would you not take that seriously I mean I can tell you that if I put my daughter in a jujitsu gym and I found out that the instructor had a series of sexual assault allegations against him, regardless of whether or not those resulted in a conviction, I would take those seriously. And I think that's, um, it's almost an example of the CSI effect where people just demand this preponderance of evidence. And I get that if you're talking about jailing someone, but when it comes to how we operate as a community community we need to listen to the other people in the community and we need we need to listen to the women who are impacted and i i have failed to do this myself and i i put that out there i'm not sure if i've talked about this on the podcast before but back when i started jujitsu there was a situation where uh, a female friend and a male friend of mine got into a pretty serious dispute they both trained jujitsu and the it basically resulted in a really really nasty falling out and at the time being a young dumb idiot i thought it was funny i actually thought oh this is just some high school type drama that's made it onto the mats and it wasn't until maybe 10 years later that i had the maturity to realize that she was probably raped or or something to that impact and that was the result of the situation i was just totally blind to it and here i was not taking it seriously when she told me about it and i'm pretty sure she doesn't train anymore probably for this reason and i don't blame her So I don't think she's listening to this episode. I certainly don't think so. And I know she wouldn't want me to name her. But I do want her to know that I'm sorry because I failed here. I did not take this allegation seriously. I looked at a situation where there was a very serious dispute between a couple and I thought it was just fun and games. And I failed to understand the severity of what was probably really happening. And I think that's what happens with a lot of men who see these things. They think it's just fun and games and they don't understand what kind of toll this takes on the other person they don't they, they seem to lose track of the fact that this is actually a fucking crime <laughs> in a lot of situations and uh, that disconnect is something about jiu that as, as I get older and as I you know I'm a, a husband I'm a father now of a young girl I have a very hard time rationalizing and I think that we need to do a better job of training the young athletes in our sport especially the men to understand that this kind of stuff is not normal and that we're holding women to a different standard we're making them guilty by default whenever there's any kind of drama or situation and this usually or at least very often results in them getting exploited and abused and it's a terrible reflection of all of us
2: agreed i you know to to what you're saying steve it's um it's interesting right like i dominica has taught and run her own program uh, i have owned co-owned my school uh, for over ten years in New Jersey, um, I teach a lot of co-ed seminars, and you know I travel around the country and and meet a lot of different people, and uh, it's it's interesting that you know what effect a woman uh, in a leadership role or at the front of the room has, because you know to what you're saying, I think that part of the solution and part of the way that we can teach people that come into our sport, uh, the etiquette, how to behave is by including more diverse examples of what leadership should be. And that is easier said than done. It takes a long time to cultivate somebody who's going to uh, to learn and take their their love and craft of the sport to a high enough level where they are then going to go teach it If if they're going to commit to it that deeply. Um, but when, when they get to that level, how many of these people might be minorities? How many of these people might be women? How many of them provide a different perspective than what has traditionally been the norm? Um, and what's interesting is in my school, I don't think we proportionally have a lot of drama in terms of cultural issues like this. And I think a big reason why is having a female head instructor and co-owner is an automatic filter for pervy guys. <laughs> like People who want to go do this kind of stuff don't want to come to my school because when they see a woman, if they even if they don't know who I am, if it's unusual <clears throat> for them to see a woman calling the shots, they certainly don't want to pay her to boss them around and tell them what to do. <laughs> And so it's actually been an interesting filter because the types of individuals we then receive are ones that are very independent thinking, open-minded, intelligent, willing to just accept knowledge from anyone when it's good knowledge to receive. Uh, as an as a side effect of that, we have a great community and uh, camaraderie amongst most of our students. Now, it's also been said to me when I've taught in my own school by other prominent you know, male black belts. Wow. This is your school, you know, like this, you own half of this or you're the head instructor. And they've noted, and and it's come from a good place. They've noted how unusual that is. And they go, wow, all these guys listen to you. And I'm like, yeah, you know, like the fact that it's a surprise, like I wish we could normalize that, you know, but I think it will still take some time. Now, when I started jujitsu, there weren't Females that uh, owned and operated schools. At least I don't recall of any I recall any at the time. I I know that at the time Lecca Viera was uh, was talked about, but there were so few women on the scene to provide any other example of uh, instruction or leadership. And so I think as we grow in numbers, and part of what I think is happening right now is that we are finally at a point where there are more women who have unfortunately encountered more negative situations, but there is power in some numbers. And some of the women that are choosing to step out and publicly use their pl- their platform to say, I, I was affected by this or this happened to me. When a woman who is a leader who is established and respected by her peers is able to to have that platform and say something with power, then I think that there are so many other women who are otherwise in the dark or feel like they don't have any power to come out and say anything who are now willing to step forward and – And say, hey, this is not okay. You know, this happened to me too. And so, you know, when we've talked about, okay, well, what's the objective of this podcast? I don't want to just beat the drums and bang the pots and pans so that we can make a fuss about it again, right? Because this happens every little while, like we always have some blow up. But you know, what is the call to action here? You know, how do we step up as men? How do we step up as women? How do we step up as business leaders, as sponsors, as everyone that is involved in our industry? Who are the people that are going to step out and actually do something about it, not support these people anymore, kick them out of their gyms or put them in check? And you know, here's the other thing, like, where? How? how do we teach these people? You know, I've certainly had instances where, you know, I had one one individual who was taught in their previous school that it was okay to use their students as a dating pool, you know, and like this individual didn't understand, like could not comprehend that this was not okay. And this stuff is being taught. So like, how do we counterbalance that? And I think the way that we counterbalance these sorts of things is we create more diverse leadership. And if the powers that be – do not want to invite you up and create space for you. Do what I did. Go build your own fucking school. <laughs> like just exit the system and do it your own way and find your way up and provide a different platform, provide a different place to exist because, uh, people who are, who, who have the control, people who have the power, who do not want you there will never give you the platform that you need to build your voice. So sometimes you just. In, in my case, shut your mouth, put your nose to the grinder, do your work and go build your own house somewhere else and then build it. They will come and then there will be a village one day, you know, and, and that's what we're seeing now. And that's the one thing that I think is really positive is that there are more voices today than there were three years ago than there were 10 years ago.
1: Wow. Yes. <laughs> so much, so much to say to that. Um, I think, uh, I think a lot of, um. okay, one thing I do want to highlight is Emily is a very fierce individual and fierce human being. And when you bring up this point of go out and do your own thing, I think that message might get lost um to, in translation to some people because this idea of leaving is terrifying to a lot of individuals. And I know that Emily and I have both been in situations where um, whatever the environment is, the social climate or the physical climate was wrong, and we had to leave, and we had to do our own thing. So we did it, and we know what it's like to do that, and it's difficult. It is, it is a trial, but at the other side of the trial exists a lot of favorable outcomes. The ability to dictate your own environment, the ability to attract people, like she said, who... Go through the filter of who you are. They see you as a woman at the forefront of the gym and they have to accept that they will be receiving instruction from you. They have to respect you as an authoritative figure within the room, and they have to learn from you, and they have to be able to train with you in the way that you dictate um the training to be uh performed well or respectively. Um what I what any advice that I have to offer for people who are struggling in their current gyms or are considering leaving an affiliation is Kind of what side of history do you want to be on? If you're trapped in a box where within the box you notice that you're being mistreated or you're being, you're surrounded by people who are unfavorable and you wouldn't want to necessarily be friends with, would you rather stay trapped in that box or venture outside and see what else lies outside of those confines? So go out there. If you're being, if you're trapped in an environment that is toxic, go out there and see what's out there. Start your own programs. Get together with people that share your passion and share your ardor, and start your own programs. Start your own facilities, even if it's a pop-up gym, even if it's, and this is, I'm speaking from experience because some of my friends did this um when they were unable to go to the gyms that they wanted to go to. Start a mat space in someone's backyard. You are able to do this. Create spaces for yourself that feel safe. And for gym owners, start trying to diversify who you are bringing into the forefront of your gym. Who do you want to to be the leader in your gym? And do you want your gym to be a, a safe space? Do you want it to be a quality space that promotes a comfortable training environment? And this includes not creating women's programs that are kind of Just programs that go by a curriculum that's incredibly boring, run by someone who doesn't care to be in the role of leading the women's program, bring women in. If you have to hire outside individuals, do so. Take the extra mile and do so. Bring them in to teach actual classes to mixed individuals, individuals of all genders, and make sure that these individuals are standing in front of the room and have a voice. I think this is what's lacking in a lot of jujitsu spaces is that women are immediately funneled into roles where they have to either do kids classes, aka babysit children, or teach women's classes. And if there are no women's classes, well, you can start one. You know, you can take that out on yourself and start one. But what a lot of gym owners need to do is take that extra step and include these women in teaching the entire expanse of the training space. Um, I know that when I was, when I received the opportunity to teach my own program, I was actually interviewed. I was interviewed and vetted by the individuals that wanted to hire me to train and teach at their space. And I did become the head instructor of the gym, but I also was being interviewed against other black belt individuals, especially men. I think this is a kind of new idea in our sport. Unfortunately, people aren't vetted. There's no human resources departments in gyms um or at least the gyms that I know of, everything is very under the table. And unfortunately, a lot of individuals tend to hire their friends. So I think another practice that can be instilled by gym owners that are willing to entertain conversations like this is vetting the people that you hire and making sure that you don't hire just the person that is closest in proximity to you, as someone that you like to have a beer with is some guy that you saw at a tournament at some point and he flying armboard somebody and you thought it was impressive and now you want them to teach for you. Make sure you know who these individuals are. Make sure you have real conversations with them about values and ethics and how they're going to lead a training space. Because I think if we neglect these, to have these conversations, we're only going to continue to um, support the cycle of the problem.
2: I think to what you're saying though, Dom, I think that there's also another issue of like people who, so again, this idea of scarcity, like this is the only instructor within a hundred mile radius that I can get. So I need a jujitsu program. I need to hire this guy. And, you know, now I think I would introduce the conversation of instruct ask athletes, instructors and leaders and business owners are not all the same thing. <laughs> and so when it comes to like, who are we going to hire for this role? Like, well, what is their role? Is it there to just instruct? Do we want this person to actually lead? And, you know, I've probably made this mistake more than once in my career. I look at my instructor and I I expect them to lead me. I I almost assume, it just comes as part of the package, that this person will teach me something wise about life. Maybe it's because growing up, I was sort sort of like taught to respect my teachers and my elders, but you kind of revere your instructor and that's another problem, right? Because then we we sort of uh, accept and revere assholes that don't deserve the light of day. Um, also, to your point about being interviewed, background checks. Like, when's the last time you heard of a jiu-jitsu instructor getting a background check? <laughs> you know, like, there are really simple things that I think we can do to help protect ourselves and our students. But it's like, at, at you know, with what risk? Like, you know, if I do that, will I lose this instructor? You know, and I need the instructor to make a profit to keep my program running. So again, like I think it comes back down to values. Like, what do you want? What does your school have to be about? What do you, how are you operating this thing? And, you know, in my school, my business partner and myself have always had other jobs, right? So jiu- jiu- running the school was never our primary um, income. And what that has done for us is it's allowed us to take our time and really thoroughly evaluate. Who we bring on board for this? Why do we want them there? Do we need to, do we, do we need them? Do we want them? How much can we pay them? Do we really, you know, how many students do we have? Do we need to bump our numbers or are we happy with the type of people that we've got in our school? Not having money be the focus of attention has alleviated some of the stresses of like, oh, I just need to uh, bring on board any old, you know, rag that comes in off the street. There has, there's a, more of an emphasis on quality and safety, right? And like these things I think are often tossed to the wayside when you are trying to run a business and you go, oh my God, bottom dollar, I need to make money. Let me just bring anybody in here to teach, not considering whether or not this person is truly qualified to lead your students in the right way.
0: I would love to dig into this a little bit deeper because this is one of the weird things about jujitsu that I think is very unique and very strange, which is that we We kind of worship the wrong thing in a lot of ways i think emily you're totally right that when we look at instructors we tend to have this hollywoodized version in our heads of what that means we think that oh because they're a black belt and they're teaching a class they must be this font of wisdom that can tell us all about the, you know, the do's and don'ts of life. And before you know it, you're listening to your instructor tell you about financial advice and whether to get a vaccine and all sorts of other stuff. Um, that's a huge problem with jujitsu, which is funny because most jujitsu instructors that I know, you know, they were doing pretty menial jobs before they discovered jujitsu and wound up making a career out of that. So these are not people who are really authorized to talk about Anything other than jujitsu. But because of this this mental mindset we have that these people are gurus, we tend to have like a halo effect where that black belt bleeds over in our mind to the other areas of life. And we wind up worshipping these people in a way that I think is kind of irrelevant. It would be like going to your accountant. And being like, wow, this guy's a CPA. I guess I better listen to him teach me about meditation and how to be a better person. It would be fucking preposterous for that to happen. But something about the gym structure and the black belt is very intoxicating. And before you know it, we give these people guru status in our mind and we let them have a level of control over us that we we shouldn't. And I think this ties very, very closely into what I would call jujitsu's original sin. You know, I I got into the sport like I'm sure you two did because I was told this was the martial art for little people who want to defend themselves against big people and this is about using your brain to conquer brawn and it's about being a noble gentle scholarly warrior and i think a lot of people who do jiu jitsu they they pattern themselves after that they think of themselves that way but if you look at the history of what jiu jitsu actually was you know you dig into this and you realize that's actually not entirely true a lot of that is marketing there's a lot of thuggery there's a lot of bigotry in jiu and this is an original sin of the sport, all the way back from the early days. And we carry that through with us to where we are today. I, I'd love to get your perspective on, on this, about how we all brainwash ourselves into thinking that the black belt is the guru and we must follow them. Because I think that's where a lot of this comes from. We give these people so much control over our lives, but we don't realize how ill-equipped these people are to have that level of control over
2: us. We shouldn't do it. <laughs> We shouldn't do it. I you know, but you know Steve, I think this goes. I don't think this is necessarily just a jiu-jitsu problem. I think it's like just it's how we're raised, right? Like we're raised to revere our teachers and respect those who pass their knowledge down to us. I just don't know how in jiu-jitsu it got so damn corrupted. (laughs) Like I don't know of other industries where it's this bad. I mean, I know it's bad in other places. And, you know, we most recently, I I mean, I guess not most recently, but the USA Gymnastics, you know, like all of that, that went down. And and again, like abuse of power from a doctor, right? But like, it's, I I don't know if in the martial arts, because we have this sort of uh, association with mind, body and spirit. And people who start jujitsu and really enjoy it, really fall in love with it. Like they get to the level of like, they are obsessed with it and they want to quit their jobs and all they want to do is jujitsu. And I think it's because, you know, outside of jujitsu, uh, you, you know, and some of your, uh, audience knows I work in the field of peak performance consulting. And what's really interesting is I think, Activities like jujitsu give us the opportunity to have a physical, tangible reality in which we can create a laboratory for us to improve ourselves. And it's a way for us to develop self-awareness. And so I think this is a really intimate and Exciting and desirable feeling for most people to have because there are very limited ways in life where we can learn to practice and express ourselves, uh, in a, in, in a, in a better manner, right? And how do we work on becoming better people? Well, jujitsu gives us some form of this. And for some people, it's something that we cerebrally think about. And for others, it's just a technical thing, you know, like I'm improving on my technique from day to day, but it's, I think jujitsu for some people becomes almost like a religious experience. And pardon this tangent, but we have largely as, as a society done away with a lot of, uh, religion right? A lot of people, less and less people are religious, less and less people are going to houses of worship and sharing a common space with each other. But jujitsu gives us this. Martial arts gives us this common space to come together, unite, do something that we all love. And we want to look to a leader. We want someone to help us access this space. So we look to the teacher and maybe we don't recognize, or maybe we don't even care that the teacher is ill-equipped to do this. How much time does it take for someone to to develop a deep level of self-awareness? A long fucking time. And then even at that, like, do some work. Like, if you're conscious of developing your self-awareness, how much more powerful is that? You know, um, I've often said to people that if you choose the path of being a competitor – Um, I don't always deem this a negative word, but it is a selfish path. You have to put a lot of emphasis and focus on what you need as a person. And it's not really about developing other people or the community around you because you need to put that focus and attention on yourself. Well, some people who achieve very high levels of success doing that never learn to take the focus back off of themselves. And then you graduate them into a position where they're now leading people and they're making money off of their accolades and this dynamic slowly, you know, where it started out in a good place and it started out of being about self-development now might become more about the ego and control and money and power. And then you have a really ugly situation on your hands. You know, so I think that our desire to have a shared reality with other people, our desire to be in a common space and to find someone to help us access this, I think this is a really powerful dynamic. And this is where, you know, I don't know that most of us are uh, equipped or evolved enough to really understand like what it is that we're doing and why we're looking for this camaraderie why we're looking to fit in why these power dynamics do exist and um, I, I but I but I have to in my mind I feel like this is part of the issue is that we we want to belong and we want to be a part of something but we're not always thinking very carefully about at what cost are we? Uh, what is the cost and expense of trying to be a part of that thing? And is that thing that we want to be a part of really good for us or good for other people?
0: And I think a lot of the time it sneaks up on us too, because people don't get into jujitsu thinking that they're going to get embroiled in a rape cult, right? People get into jujitsu because they want to get in shape. They want to learn how to defend themselves. Uh, and it isn't until you've been in there for a few years that this stuff often sneaks up on you, and it's very insidious. And I think that's where a lot of this comes from. I mean, I can speak from my own experience, and I don't know how well this translates to other people, but a common statement you'll hear from people is that white belt is just a joyous time because you come into the sport and you discover this whole new world of fitness and applied mechanics and you learn how to defend yourself and you build confidence and every day is a learning experience and you're not really looking beyond what's happening on the mat you're thinking about kimuras and arm bars and whatever instructor teaches you that day but once you get to the point where you have a degree of seniority that's when you start to see the hideous side of the sport and it usually blindsides people and by that point there's already been enough of an investment that it's hard to betray this thing that you've already sunk so much effort into I mean this was my personal experience when I first encountered the what I would call the dark side of jiu-jitsu I had already put in maybe two years into this thing and I would got my blue belt and I was plucking along at the time and I just I love the mechanics of it and then the drama began and now that I'm one of the more senior people I suppose in the gym suddenly I'm starting to get exposed to this and I'm getting told by my instructor who I can and can't be friends with and I'm getting told by my instructor which which of his female students are toxic and shouldn't be talked to and that kind of stuff Sneaks up on you. And it's one thing if a stranger comes up to you on the street and starts saying this repugnant shit. But after you've already drank the Kool Aid and you've been in this art for a, a decent amount of your life, it starts to bleed through and you start to see this stuff for the first time and you get a, a degree of cognitive dissonance. It's very hard after you've fallen in love with the mechanics of the sport and what it means to be on the mats. It's very hard when your eyes suddenly open up and you you see what actually is happening in the sport and how widespread this problem is. And I I would say if I could go back in time, if I could warn people who start the sport, I mean, Avery Clements from Jiu-Jitsu Times just wrote a fucking incredible article. I highly recommend that everyone drop everything and read this. It's called uh, The Call is Coming from Inside the Gym. I think it just went live today or yesterday. Article she put out about this exact situation uh, Google it on Jiu-Jitsu Times. It's absolutely fanat- uh, fantastic. And it it talks about how Jiu-Jitsu fails to deliver on the promise that it puts forth, which is that it is this wonderful art for small people to make friends and get in shape and learn to be trained killers. And people get into this thinking they're going to learn to be a better version of themselves, but they inadvertently open up the door to a bunch of predators. And when that inevitably happens, the cognitive dissonance kicks in. And it's hard to, it's hard to break up with this sport that you've fallen in love with over the years. It's very, very challenging. And it's a battle that I know I have, I fought myself and I know a lot of other people have fought. I'm sure you guys have too. I mean, Dom, I would, Dom, I would love to know what you think here on this matter.
1: Oh man, you're going to have to repeat that last uh, (laughs) question to me, Steve, because this whole time I'm just thinking about, um, as you were saying, uh, before about like, just, um, the, the veil being lifted and kind of being immersed into this new reality of jiu-jitsu that isn't so poised and beautiful as, um, you saw with your white belt goggles. Because I had a very similar unveiling, um, when I started to graduate up the ranks and enter into brown, my brown belt and black belt days. And I started to be like a more, um, I guess I was already an active competitor, but I guess I started to have more of a presence as a, as a person within jiu-jitsu. And I started to notice, um, I, first of all, people started to um indulge in me and tell me their stories and tell me their experiences within my own gym and within their own gyms. And I started to realize that jujitsu was really just chalk filled with drama and chalk filled with individuals that I guess had a chip on their shoulder. Maybe their mother never held them enough, or maybe that some schoolyard bully kicked dirt in their face when they were four years old. And they realized that, when the instructor's eye was on them, they could uh have this like grand sense of grandeur that they belonged somewhere, that they were somebody, and then they used this kind of feeling to elevate themselves to positions of power within their gym, and then uh used that power inevitably to look down upon, be mean to, ridicule, bully, et cetera, et cetera, other students. And I was extremely disappointed in what I saw. And then I noticed a very curious fact, which is it kind of um plays into the conversation we're having about sexual assault because people treated my kind of um observations about the bullying or the misbehavior that was going on that wasn't sexually related, sexual assault related. Um it seemed very the reactions of the people that I told these stories to seemed very similar to the reactions of certain individuals. Right now, who are very dismissive of these uh, sexual assault and harassment cases, um, or at least stories. Um, and I, I was very taken aback. I, I kind of thought that everybody wants to be a good guy. Um, this is like in our, in our, we, we already kind of talked about this earlier, but I thought that in Jiu Jitsu, everybody more or less wants to be a hero or going through a hero's journey. So in my mind, everybody wanted to be ethical and moral and good. Everybody wanted to support a very lovely, compassionate training environment where we were all friends. And the people that were dismissive of my observations were kind of just like talking about how, well, this individual never did anything to me. Or, well, I never witnessed this individual do anything bad. Or, well, you know, that's just the price of being in a really large gym. Or, well, we all have bad days and what i was noticing was more of an epidemic in the community itself of individuals being just extremely dismissive of people in positions of power misbehaving as a whole like as in a in a blanket statement sort of way and then something clicked in my mind and, uh, what my realization was is that I was by bringing up these observations compromising the sanctuary of the training space to the bystanders. The witnesses who, uh, saw this and heard me talk about this didn't want the illusion of safety in their space to be ruined. They didn't want the person that they enjoyed learning jujitsu from to be uh, like perceivably this monster or this bully or this just not favorable figure. They wanted to be learning from somebody that was good or pure. And then I asked myself another question, well, why are these individuals so attached to their coaches? And then Another kind of realization followed and that was, oh, I assume that these individuals, these students, see themselves in their coaches. They want to be like their coaches in the jujitsu sense. And that association may develop to be so strong that the student might actually want to become the coach in every sense of the world. So if the coach is not ethical, then the student might become unethical. And that kind of association destroys the student's perception of the space that they exist within. And then all they want to do is deny. So I just thought, as you were talking, Steve, I was kind of milling around this idea of why individuals develop this kind of, um, this, uh, I wouldn't say obsession, but this like deep intent to have this, um profound respect for their instructors or even higher-ups in their jiu-jitsu space and why they would choose to kind of associate themselves with these individuals to the point where they are willing to completely disregard the the unsafety or the toxicity of their um, environment
0: it is an interesting problem because i think that this is something that's very if not unique to jiu-jitsu it's, it's something that's unique to jiu-jitsu and activities like it. The, the example I always give, because we, as you guys know, we talk a lot on the podcast about the cult-like tactics that a lot of jiu-jitsu gyms use. And nothing is more cult-like than turning jiu-jitsu into your own personal rape cult. And that happens shockingly often in this sport. And one of the the counterfactuals I use when I talk to people about this, when people message me and they say, Steve, here's my situation. Does this qualify as a as a cult? Am I being abused? The thing I always ask them is, would you tolerate this in any other walk of life? If you went to a Starbucks and they treated you the way that your instructor is treating you, and they did the things that your instructor does, would you consider that normal? If you took a job and your your boss treated you the way that your instructor treats you, would you consider that normal? Would you consider it normal if your instructor demanded your loyalty? Would you consider it normal if your instructor told you that all of the women in the gym can't be trusted? If there was a rape accusation against your instructor, would your first instinct be to rally around them before you even know if it's true or not? Because I can tell you, if I was working as an accountant and my boss got accused by my coworkers of rape or sexual assault or even you know sexual abuse, I would not rally behind that boss before I knew what the fuck was going on. And that's a weird thing that I find about jujitsu. And I I think that you're right, Dom, which is that we get jujitsu so entrapped in our own sense of identity. We idealize what it means to be a black belt. We idealize what the sport is supposed to mean for us. And when that inevitably comes crashing down through some of these allegations, the thing that I find is people don't even want to hear them. They're before they even know what's actually happened, they are defending their instructor and defaming the victim. And look, I, I understand the desire that to have everyone have their day in court and to have a fair trial. And I'm not saying that we should crucify people on social media. But at the end of the day, I know a lot of people in these in these types of situations where before they even know the specifics of what actually happened or before they can prove things one way or the other, they're already defending the instructor and they're already rallying to to defame the victim. And that's a problem. You You would not see that in a real profession. You would not allow that in any other walk of your life.
2: But I think that some of that is due to the fact that it is a passion. It is a hobby for most people. It's something that they deeply love. And if something is going to tarnish the, the passion, you know, like this individual has spent a lot of time being a part of this institution, building it with all their goodwill and energy. If it, it gives back to them, it makes them feel fulfilled. And for them to then. Uh, doubt their instructor, you know, after, after something has uh, maybe an incident has been raised for them to then cast doubt on their instructor, for them to then cast doubt on the culture of what they're a part of. I think for a lot of people, that's a deeply like shameful place. And then they go, they take it personally and they say, well, then am I part of the reason? Like, did I contribute to that? And I, I think that that accountability is so scary for, for, for people, uh, that that they just shut it down and they turn away from it. It's like how I opened the podcast and I said, listen, my generation and what I came up with, as much as people are like, oh, you're a pioneer. Oh, you're a trailblazer. Oh my gosh, you created all these opportunities for women. I'm like, yeah, but at what expense did did I have to create opportunities for women? At what expense did I have to shut my mouth and look the other way? At what expense did I have to swallow something that happened terribly to myself or someone else to survive to even get to this place and the you know the 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 turns the the rapid turns every year of all of this stuff going on what is it that we have to suffer through in order to protect this passion that we have and be a part of whatever it is that we think that we're building i think a lot of people i i mean a, people that know me know that i have no problem you know being honest and being candid and taking accountability for things and i will be accountable and i'll say as a female I've had to do some shitty things, right? And like, I've had to witness shitty things. To, if if anything, to get to a place now where I can look look back and say, okay, I've earned a little bit more of a platform or I've created more of a platform So that we can now deal with these types of situations and do better. I've known better. Maybe I wasn't in a position to do better, but I will, I will vocalize that this was the position I was put in and I want to do better in the future. Right. And I, and I I think that that's something that should be on, on people's minds is like, okay, how do we, how do we all take accountability for this? Because this is not just a, a an isolated incident of the uh the victim and the uh the predator this is all of us that are part of that you know like we're all t- like networked in no matter how much we want to separate ourselves from it it's part we're part of it
0: what i want to know emily is because you're totally right our generation has totally screwed this up i want to know dom how are you going to fix this <laughs> Oh my. it's on you Emily and I dropped the ball you got to pick it up
1: guys I'm trying I'm doing my best <laughs> I'm trying um well I think uh a, a couple of different like um avenues that we can take uh just as as individuals who see everything that's going on and maybe we're not directly involved but feel like oh maybe we can be doing more um just Share, bring awareness, use your voice, even if you think you have a small uh, voice or a small platform. Every bit of uh spreading the information helps. Um, talk to your instructors if you are an instructor, take a look at the kind of um the kind of um kind of situations that you've laid out for your gym to express. Take a look at the people that you've hired, take a look at the environment that you've curated. And try to figure out if there's anything that can be improved upon. And I think we need to be more open as a community to listening to these stories and not immediately dismissing them or even, even being so arrogant as to immediately hold an opinion over the head of someone's trauma. Um, I also, uh, recently read a book by Adam Grant called Think Again. And one thing that he mentioned in this book is that um, fear is very closely tied to someone's inability to grow, which we all know. But I also think that um, our inability to uh, speak out that something is wrong for fear of being ostracized or for fear of having our voices silent is also going to prevent us from growing as a community. So, those individuals that are kind of digging their heels in um or maybe even if they're not vocalizing it, maybe internally you're digging your heels and you don't want to believe that your instructor or somebody that you idolize um is acting in a manner that is completely unfavorable or against your ethics or I guess general ethics um just try to understand that uh humans are all fallible, like just instructors are not um. They're not prize ponies, man. They all have their trauma. They all have their shit. They all, you know, do some weird stuff at night when you're not looking. All of us, you know, some of us eat peanut butter straight out of the jar and some of us get up to more nefarious activities. But, um, we need to work on removing some of that, um, idol worship, removing some of that icon, iconization of individuals that are just individuals who are good at a sport. Um, that's all we are. If we continue to treat um, martial arts as like this sacred or this incredibly sacred spiritual thing that is untouchable and the people who represent it as untouchable, then we're never going to be able to have um, honest conversations with one another and safe training spaces. So this is the Millennial's uh, Guide to <laughs> Helping to Stop Sexual Assault in a Niche Martial Arts Community. <laughs> oh
2: my god, never trust millennials. Am I going to get in
0: trouble if uh, I name the episode The Millennial's Guide to Sexual Assault and I am not a
1: millennial. I am not a millennial. <laughs> I am yeah. just in the cutoff. I am just in the cutoff.
0: How um, can you be just in the cutoff? I'm almost forty, and they tell me I'm just in the cutoff.
1: Millennials are, I, it, according to Google, millennials exist from ninety four to ninety six. I don't know. I think uh. the start date is somewhere in the eighties, but um, I'm ninety five, so I am barely grazing millennial. I could be Gen Z if I if I found a couple of uh, useful articles. <laughs> Hold
0: on. Does that mean I'm Gen X? oh no 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 steve when are you born
1: 1980 i'm in
2: 1980 and i'm a zennial i I don't want to say i don't
0: want to say when i'm born i don't want to say when i'm born because someone's going to steal my identity all
2: right all right someone's going to put
0: out a credit card in my name
2: i do i have a question for you guys though so this is a nice tactical like practical it's like a good question i think to to ask that was posted on my instagram um by leg lock club so I appreciate when when we put a call to action out that people actually do like respond. It's it's kind of cool. Um, so Leglock says, Leglock Club, would be interested in our opinion if someone found themselves in a toxic training environment, whether it be good course of action to try and change the quote unquote culture of the environment and how, or just to remove themselves from it, leave the place. Of course, there would be many factors to consider in such a scenario. But I have my own opinions about this, but I'm asking the question. So- Dominika and Steve, what would your response be?
0: Oh boy, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, Dom, do you want to take that first, or do you want me to take a crack at it?
1: Um, okay, I can take a crack at it because, uh, well, um, the two situations outlined are: do you do something about it in house, or do you leave? And I would say, um, my personal approach, which is an opinion, I'm of the opinion in general that somebody, uh, any given person, can create. Waves of change through any small action. So I always think it's best to start in house. And then if all things fail, um, then remove yourself from the situation and maybe help to spread awareness about whatever's happening inside that space to others so that others may be kind of protected and not venture into that space and assume that everything's okay. But I think one of the, one of the first things that can be started is to create dialogue, um, within the community. So if you're just a student, um, Ask another student to coffee or ask a group of students to coffee or after training, start a dialogue about what you think might be happening in your space that isn't 1000% great or nice or um, comfortable or appropriate. And uh, if you find that there are several people that share this opinion, you are not the only one, um, then perhaps you can together as a group um, voice what your misgivings are to whoever will listen that is in the that is a little bit higher up in the hierarchy that is a voice of authority, whether that be somebody that works for the gym or the head instructor or one of the instructors or somebody that will um be able to listen to you and not immediately shut down what you're saying, but instead invite you into a position where you can have a conversation about what kinds of changes can take place to help the environment. And I've been a part of many gyms. Most gyms, no matter how many kind of shitty things happen in those gyms, will consider having conversations about how to make the gym a better place. Because at the end of the day, what you might be telling an instructor, even if they're self-interested, is you might be losing money if you continue to do these practices. And even if they are just money-hungry individuals who don't give a damn about ethics or morals or anything like that, they might listen to you just on that facet of they want to make sure that their business is safe. So if you are able to have that conversation, then hopefully you might be able to see real change. Um And then hopefully your instructor or whoever was in charge of that conversation will be um grateful to you for bringing this to their attention. And if not, if you're constantly getting gaslit or railroaded or nobody wants to listen to you or people are putting you down, they're bullying you, they're creating situations that are unsafe for you, you should leave. And leaving is difficult, but it is so doable. And I promise you, if you feel, if you're on the fence right now, if you're like, I don't know about my gym, I think it might be weird. I think it might be bad. Some people are saying this thing and I tend to believe them. I've had some of my ex- some experiences myself. I just don't know if I can do it. You should do it. I believe you can do it. I've done it. I've left gyms before that I thought were not great for me, that I thought were kind of detrimental to my growth as a human being. And I thought they, they were unsafe for me. And you can do it too. And if you, if any of you guys that are listening to this podcast have, um, want to talk out any of these situations, you are always free and welcome to message me or DM me or talk to me. If you see me in a tournament or anywhere, I'm more than happy to talk about um, these issues with you because I know how difficult it can be. And I just want to encourage people to search for their places of safety and comfort because I know I did. And when I found my oasis, I've never looked back.
0: Brilliant, brilliant statement. And I I would agree with that 100%. I was also involved in a gym that kind of embroiled into a whole bunch of cult-like tactics of which one of them was what we're discussing here today. And even as a guy who was not the direct target of all of this, it was tremendously hard for me to leave because I'd put about two years of my life at this point into an art that I loved. I'd committed to this group, but I started to see the signs and eventually I made the decision to leave and that was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. I would follow up. Like Dom said, I would agree with that 100%. If you need a sounding board as to whether your gym is a bad place to be, just message any of us. And I'd be happy to hear you out. Odds are though, if you feel like you need to ask someone, should I leave this gym? Almost always the answer is yes, because almost always, you know, the answer inside, but you're just having trouble committing to it but you definitely should the only other thing i would add on top of that is if you are the victim of abusive behavior at a gym and you want to say something yes you should definitely speak up but make sure first and foremost that you feel you can do that in a safe way there there are some gyms where frankly the situation is so toxic or so dangerous that you might not feel comfortable speaking up directly to the owners of the gym in an ideal world if there's a bad apple in the gym as they say and I hate that phrase but let's just say it if there's a bad apple in the gym then ideally you should be able to trust the instructor and go talk to them and ask them to fix it but honestly if you have to prioritize your own safety first and if you feel like that instructor is also part of the systemic problem then you need to make sure that when you provide that feedback it's done so in a in a safe environment so I would say first and foremost make sure that if you're if you're in the situation that you prioritize your own safety first and because this is probably uncharted territory for you if you have a concern and you don't know what the right thing is to do the best thing to do is ask someone in the community who privately who's had that experience before including the the people on the call here today so man that, that was a hell of a chat Emily what do you think
2: I'm satisfied with your answers. Um, I'd also just like to, I'd also like to, you know, say like, look, things have changed in 20 years and we have more access to the internet and social media. Like we, we have a community that exists outside of the one that is necessarily just where we're training the that local community. And, um, you know, I, I agree with, with what both of you guys have said. Uh, but as you can see, my habitual behavior is to fuck everything and do my own thing <laughs> because I just get tired of it, you know? And, and also, I, I, I really do think that sometimes, not always, but sometimes, um, when the powers that be just don't change, when, when we have been stuck inside the same type of, uh, behavior, mechanism, system, structure, and there really isn't enough, uh, evolution, when there isn't enough change, that, yeah, sometimes there will be uh people like myself or others who will just say, you know what, let me just go see what the alternative looks like and I'll go do it over here. And if nobody shows up, then okay, fine. I'm at the party by myself. But maybe there are other people that believe there should be alternatives offered. Maybe there are other people that think that there could be um Better realities. And I would encourage those people in the community who do, uh, feel that they can lead and who want to lead and who can offer, uh, a more diverse picture of what our communities can look like, that they should actually go do those things because we need that. We just need different voices. You know, you could be purple. You could be a girl. You could be a they, like whatever you are, just be a different voice and uh, compared to what we've always had and chances are you will be creating an inclusive and healthier environment for yourself and others inevitably there are others that would want to follow your lead um so that's my that's my question to my own question that someone else put up on my instagram <laughs> and and then i would also you know i know we're kind of running low on time but the the other thing that i would just like to say is you know there's so many more um types of leaders and individuals in the community brands you know, you name it. The industry is there. Use your feet. Use your dollars. Go support the people and the things and the places that are doing the right things, doing the things that you believe in. Um, that is a way to empower the right people in the community.
0: Amazing, Dom. How about you? You've got the the last statement here. Closing thoughts. Let's end this strong. What do you got to say?
1: Oh, my gosh, this is way too much pressure. I thought that I was going <laughs> to end strong with my last
2: <laughs> Go millennials. Millennials. The, okay, I have to make my
1: millennials <laughs> proud. Guys, I just want to say um, thank you, Steve, for creating this platform for us to be able to speak about such a loaded topic. I feel very grateful that I am in a position where I do, and Emily, you might feel the same way, Steve, you might feel the same way, that we do have a platform where we're able to communicate to people who feel like they don't have a a voice and these people are able to reach out to us and tell us their heartbreaking stories and share with us the struggles that they've been through in hopes that we are able to help guide them or maybe voice our own opinions or help elevate these stories to a greater audience. And I just want to say that um, I I do think that with increased awareness and with it, it, with us, continuing to be vocal about things like this and us continuing to ask for more from our instructors, from our leaders in jiu-jitsu, from media sources in jiu-jitsu, from people who are organizers of tournaments in jiu-jitsu. We need to keep demanding more, more ethical behavior, more moral behavior, more investigations, more looking into what it takes to create a safe space. And if we just continue to demand it and continue having this fight within us, the same fire that many competitors have when they're reaching for gold, we need to have the same kind of fire within us when we're reaching for actual humane standards within jiu-jitsu. We might be able to reach a reality where jiu-jitsu gyms are safe spaces for everybody, and everybody can feel like their needs are met, and they're being heard.
2: Thunderous applause, thunderous applause. You know what we didn't get to talk about, Steve? So Steve, I'm I'm going to call you out here, and I'm going to say there was a time where um you said that me and dominica could treat this podcast as our own so i'm gonna treat it as my own right now (laughs) i'm just gonna say (laughs) fuck why
0: did i say that okay go for it go for it
2: i listen i would love to invite if there are some prominent male black belts out there that just want to have like a for reals discussion about this like i don't want to like this isn't a shakedown it's not about man-hating but like Let's talk about how difficult it is to lead in today. Like like today, like with everything that's going on. You know, how difficult is it to be a prominent male athlete, to run a school and to feel these different types of pressures and like how should you lead? What should you do? Um I'm not necessarily expecting answers, but I would love to see uh, a, a male athlete who has is in this position come and be willing to have a discussion, just like me and Dominika and Steve had. We're not going to throw insults. Like I, I just love to get a, a real opinion on the record because I can have some of these. I, you know, I'm sure Dominika as well. Like I can have some of these conversations. Um, in the back alleys with friends that I have and people that I know. But I know it's a scary and intimidating space for a lot of these men to actually come and publicly talk about this stuff because they don't want to be, um, you know, accused of harboring, you know, uh, pedophiles and criminals and, and sexual assaulters or anything like that. And, and, it's also like, this is an opportunity for us to actually engage in a real discussion. And I don't want this to be about trying to uh, make all the men in our community feel bad. This is an opportunity for us to actually just be really real about what's going on. And to understand that this is not a problem that has a simple yes or no answer. This is a problem that needs to be managed. This is a problem that we all need to build more awareness of. So I'm going to put that call out, Steve. And if someone responds to that, like, let's do this again. And, and then the other thing we didn't get to touch on at all. So I'm going to say we should either do part two, or maybe you should think about contacting this individual is we didn't get to talk about sports ethics or governance. And I think that is a major part of this discussion. So, um, I'd love to get into that more deeply, whether I'm a part of that or you, um, You have specific guests that can speak more directly to that. But I think that that is something that uh, is worth digging into.
0: Well, if people do want to reach out to you, Emily, how do they do it?
2: You can get in contact with Steve at BJJ.
0: (laughs) God damn it. (laughs)
2: You can reach me uh, on uh, well, you know what? Sometimes on I'm on Instagram. Sometimes I'm on Facebook. Uh, Sometimes you can email me on my website emilyquack.com. You know, one of those three avenues. You can you can probably reach out and hit me. But um, yeah, I'd love to engage in like a legitimate discussion with more people about this because I think the more transparent we can be about the fact that this is not an easy problem to root out. This is not an easy problem for us to deal with. Any of us, male or female. I think the more we can normalize this discussion of how we improve our cultures, right, as opposed to believing and holding on to the idea of what we think we have and knowing that what we think we have is probably rotten on some level.
0: Mm -hmm. Dominica, what about you? How do people get in touch with you?
1: Hey, yeah, you I'm never basically on Facebook. I only check that once in a while. So please get in touch with me. By messaging me on my Instagram, which is at Dom de Your Mom, Da is D A, not T H D, or you can be more professional and send me an email to my website, which is www.dominicao.com. com. That's my first name plus O, the first letter of my last name. Dot com.
0: Fucking millennials. Whole conversation about, whole conversation about a uh, very, very, very serious two-hour conversation. How can reach you reach it? Dom to bomb your mom. Of course, of course. Millennials.
1: Uh, it's gonna be <laughs> my handle until I'm seventy, if Instagram exists and we're not all um, what do you call it? AI uploads by then
0: awesome awesome and of course for me i think everyone knows bjjmentalmodels.com if you want to contact me there's a contact form there you can find our social media there you can find pretty much everything there emily dominica two returning champions i thought this was incredible i i really thank both of you for for making the time to have this conversation i can't wait to get this out there going to try to do that as fast as i can so again to both of you Thank you so much for your time. I really, truly do appreciate it. And of course, to all of the listeners who spend the time with us. Thank you. As always, I hope this episode was illuminating. Talk to you guys next time.